So, Father, we, we thank you for today. We thank you for what we can learn from your word this morning. Father, that you're with that young church in action as we look at Acts, Father. And, Father, we can relate that to our own story here with our own church, Father, that we know that for the last 20 years that you've been with us, Father, despite the, the trials that we've had, gone, had to go through the tribulations, some of the persecution that we face, Father, that we, we were bold to proclaim your name. So we thank you for that. We thank you for being with us. Father, I pray that you continue to speak through us in your word this morning. Father, I pray that my lips are your lips. My heart is your heart, Father. And that we won't be just hearers of this word, but we will be doers of it as well. I ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, good morning, church. Uh, it's great to be with you here today as we are continuing in our series on Acts, the Young Church in Action. As Jamie already talked about this morning, we are celebrating our own young church, and we're going to be having a wonderful celebration over the next few weeks as we look at uh, talk with Urban Impact and Silver Ink Thing and some of our missions organizations, our youth, children, what's been happening here over the last 20 years. It's really amazing to see where we're at, and we're going to see a video at the end of this uh, service talking about how this building even came to be on this property, which is, it's just, it's just remarkable. So the next few weeks are going to be very exciting, very exciting as we look back and celebrate. I do want to encourage you to make sure you mark your calendars for that July 19th date as we uh, have a, a wonderful celebration here at the church, and uh, we have a, a, a picnic after. But, you know, as we look around, uh, you know, where, where we've been and where we're at now as, as our own young church, it's, 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 it's wonderful to celebrate what's been happening. And as I prayed, it's also true that uh, there's been some times of trials and persecution along the way. And as we look at this uh, chapter in Acts, we, we can see the same thing happening. That persecution was, was happening even back then. You know, it doesn't take a genius to figure out as you look around in the culture that, uh, uh, that Christians are persecuted. You know, I, I keep uh, going back to, you know, there's that uh, from pastors in China who are being persecuted or in jail because they've been proclaiming the name of Jesus. And it doesn't take a genius to figure out persecution really happens now as it did back then. I know that uh, Jamie and I, Pastor Jamie and I, had a wonderful privilege of going to uh, the Holy Land uh, a few weeks ago. And uh, one of the things that we were able to do was go to uh, Rome and see the Colosseum. And uh, I know that that conjures up a lot of images in people's minds of the Colosseum where the Christians were really persecuted. Interestingly enough, there was a spot right near the Colosseum that actually most of the persecution happened. It was called the Circus Maximus. It was like a big racetrack there. That's where most of the Christians were actually persecuted. You know, the Colosseum held 60-some thousand. This place held 250,000 people. And this is where a lot of the persecution took place. And I remember being there really in awe, thinking, wow, it's a really a reminder of the martyrs that really stood up for their faith and were persecuted. And I know that Pastor Jamie and I were walking around afterwards in Rome, and we went, we went to these little uh, uh, souvenir shops, as Jamie calls them, tchotchke shops. And, uh, you know, there's T-shirts and, and things, you know, from Rome. And one of the things I remember is we walked into one and the guy said, no, no, come in the back. I've got a lot more stuff in the back room. And Jamie and I walked in this back room and this guy had a whole arsenal of weapons and paraphernalia and, and things that went back to the times of persecution. He had old gladiator helmets and old uh, equipment that was used for torture devices, finger knives and huge swords 
And he even had a guillotine. And I thought, I'm not going to get a guillotine as a present for my kids uh, when I get home. Hey, kids. Well, I'm home. I, I didn't need to be reminded of the persecution that happened there. I didn't need a gladiator helmet or a, a sword or dagger to remind me of the persecution that happens. But persecution happened back then as it did in the time of Acts, as it does now. And as we look at this chapter here, we understand, as we look at Acts, we understand that, that persecution really happened uh, within the church, the young church in action. In fact, we're in chapter 4. There's only three other chapters beyond this chapter that don't mention something about persecution. There's 28 chapters in Acts. We're not going through them all, but understand it's full. As the church grew, as the numbers grew, as the, as the gospel message of Jesus was proclaimed and people became Christians, persecution happened. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn there. We're going to be looking at kind of the entire passage of, of Acts, even though we only had a chance to read just a few verses here. But we know we read there right in verse 1. Uh, you know, as Pastor Jamie alluded to, there was a healing that took p- place in chapter 3. And the priests, in uh, verse 1 of chapter 4, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John. While they were speaking to the people, they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail the next day, till the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. So what happened is, is that Peter and John were proclaiming the name of Jesus, and they, they, they're brought in front of the religious leaders, the Sadducees. You understand the Sadducees were the religious leaders of the day. They were the ones that, they didn't believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. They didn't believe in the, the, the oral tradition. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in uh, the spiritual world. They really felt that man was master of his own destiny. That in an effort that if you follow certain laws, certain things that you do, certain actions, that you will become saved. It's kind of a uh, different approach to salvation. You know, it's interesting because when we look back at this passage, it's, I think it's easy to distance ourselves and we think, well, that's not going to happen today. Persecution does not happen today like it did back then. We are not brought in front of the, the local religious leaders and asked to stop proclaiming the name of Jesus. But let me encourage you that persecution maybe doesn't happen the same way. It happens differently. It's maybe a little bit more subtle. That's what I feel like happens in our culture. Persecution is a lot more subtle. I don't think that people fear getting in front of, when you're proclaiming the name of Jesus, people don't fear getting in front of, thrown in front of the the religious leaders, but people fear being the outcast. People fear being uh, threats to their own pride. The need for acceptance or status. Nobody wants to proclaim the name of Jesus. Nobody, many Christians don't want to talk about what Jesus did on the cross because they're often labeled as narrow-minded, conservative, they're legalistic, you're, you're the outcast, you're not accepting of other religions, you're not tolerant. People don't want to share their faith with somebody. Why? Because we're afraid what, we're going to offend them. It happens all the time. It's persecution. And I, because we are fearful of being the outcast, being the ones that are kind of labeled in society. We see that all the time in our culture. People aren't standing up for what we believe is is true and biblical and right. People aren't proclaiming the gospel because of fear of rejection or being outcast. That's why people don't want to stand up to things about uh, issues such as, uh, you know, the relationship, a marriage relationship between a man and a woman. 
People don't want to stand up to uh, the fact that, you know, the government takes, uh, is taking uh, the Bible and prayer out of schools. Or the, or the culture that we live in that's kind of become sexually uh, rampant. I know for many years I worked with the Silver Ring thing, a sexual abstinence program that was kind of launched out of Christ Church. And I remember over the years it was getting harder and harder to uh, get into, uh, uh, to get youth pastors to uh, bring their students to the program. And I remember talking to one youth pastor who said, you know what, Jared, I just don't want to bring my students because I know that some of them are already engaging in premarital activity and I don't want to offend them. And then you're going to give the gospel to them. And I think, are you a, you're a youth, you're a youth pastor, right? I'm not sure what church this is. But see, he didn't want to be outcast. He didn't want to be isolated. That's why I'm so glad what our church does. We stand up for things. We preach biblical truth. But I think persecution happens in the form of this. We don't want to, we don't want to uh, be the outcast. And so what happens is, is we become uh, tolerant. And we become complacent and we become worldly. And I think that's really what detracts people from Christianity altogether. Because they don't want to, we don't stand up for what we believe is true and right. That's why James 1, 2, I love it. Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. Why? Because the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Okay, so if we understand persecution happens today. Maybe in different forms. Maybe in the same kind of forms. You go to maybe other countries. Persecution happens in the same forms today as in other countries. As it did back then. Persecution happens now as it did 100 years ago, 500 years ago, all the way back to the time of Acts. How do we deal with it? How do we deal with it? How do we stand up in our culture? Proclaim the message of Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. How do we do that in the culture in which we live? I think... Uh, this passage from Acts really points to that, Peter and John. And there's, I think, six, six principles for handling persecution. We're going to go through them very quickly. Six principles for handling persecution in all times and all places. Number one, first, we must be filled with the Spirit. We have to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 7, as you see there in Acts 4. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter filled what the Holy Spirit said to them. You know, it's very difficult if we're going to talk to others about what Christ did on the cross if we're not filled with the Holy Spirit. If we're not constantly yielding to, you know, to His will in our lives. It's very difficult to do. It is very difficult to do. When Peter and John did this, they were drawn closer to God. I think lack of being spirit-filled is why many churches, many Christians don't want to stand up to things. Because they don't have the spirit inside of us. And many people are fearful. They say, you know what, I don't want to talk to anybody about uh, what Christ did on the cross because I don't really even know what to say. That's why being spirit-filled is so important as we look at Luke 12. It says, when you are brought before the synagogues, rulers, and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you. At that time, what you should say. The Holy Spirit's our God. The Holy Spirit's the one talking through us. I don't know if you've ever had a chance to, to share your faith, talk about what Christ did, but it's amazing what the Holy Spirit can do. It's amazing what the Holy Spirit can do when you yield to His power in your life. You know, we talked about uh, this a few weeks ago. I'm not going to get all the way back into it, but you know, we talked about Pentecost. People were filled at Pentecost with the Holy Spirit. It's different than baptism or the Holy Spirit. Being baptized with the Holy Spirit is a one-time event. 
Being filled with the Holy Spirit is a continual event. That's why in, in Acts 2, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Again, here in Acts 4, they are filled with the Holy Spirit. We see time and time and again throughout Acts, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. How do you become filled with the Holy Spirit? How do you become filled with the Holy Spirit? You have to yield to His will in your life. You have to be praying. You have to be reading your scriptures. You have to be filled with the Holy Spirit, asking Him to come in you. That's why Ephesians 5.18, instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your hearts to the Lord always, giving thanks to the God the Father for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, we are overflowed. That's what happens. When we are filled with the Holy Spirit, it just overflows amongst us. That's why if you've ever been around people who are just overflowing the Spirit, you can tell. They have such peace, such joy in their life because they're filled with the Holy Spirit. We have to be filled. As one uh, uh, child said to his mother, a mother was talking to a child about this passage and said, you have to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And the child got it and said, Mommy, if, if I need to be filled with the Holy Spirit, I hope he likes tacos because that's what he's getting tonight. <laughs> a child got it. You have to be filled with the Holy Spirit. But here's the key. If you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, you first have to empty yourself of something else. You first have to give up everything that you think that you can do in your own power. You can't be filled with something else if you're living your life the way you think that you should live it. If you think that the abilities that you have are your own given man-made abilities, you can't be filled unless you first empty yourself. And then we're filled. Peter and John were filled with the Holy Spirit. That's how we proclaim the name of Jesus. Number two. Not only do we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit, but we must be aggressive to seize every opportunity. Every opportunity. As you look at verse 8, it says, Peter filled the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we were being called into account today for an act of kindness showed to a cripple and asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. What happened? Peter and John are getting questioned about something that happened in chapter 3. A wonderful thing that happened. They're getting questioned, and what do they do? They turn the tables on the religious leaders. They say, you're questioning us on being kind to a crippled man? I'll tell you how he's become saved. You're asking me how, he's become, how, 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 he, how he was healed? In what name? In the name of Jesus. They used every opportunity that they could. I don't think they were looking for that opportunity. They weren't looking to be in front of the religious leaders. But when they were asked, they said, here's my opportunity. Are you looking for opportunities to share the gospel message with those around you? I remember at Geneva College, we had, uh, I did an evangelism explosion class, if you've ever done one of those, which is a wonderful class. And one of the things we had to do was, um, we, part of our assignment was to go up to a random stranger and tell them about uh, what Christ did on the cross. And we had like a week to do it. And I thought of all these, uh, you know, it was kind of scary to me at the time. And I remember getting on an elevator with somebody, and, you know, he said, do you want to go up? And in my mind, I thought, maybe I can say, do you want to go up to heaven? And I thought, nah, that'd be kind of too. <laughs> but what I did do was, uh, I, somehow, somebody called me. Somebody called me uh, later in that week, wanted to sell me a newspaper. And I was like, I'm in a dorm room. I don't know if you get the fact that I cannot receive a newspaper, but nonetheless... It was a random call, and what he said was, do you know all the news that's going on around our culture today, all in your city of Beaver Falls? And if not, would you like to know? And I said, no, thank you, but let me ask you a question. 
Do you know the way to eternal life? And if not, would you like to know? And it was a wonderful thing. And I, was, I remember being scared out of my mind thinking, this guy's on the phone. He's going to hang up with me. He's going to call all his friends at the newspaper company and tell all about me. But I remember the Holy Spirit working through me. And I was able to witness to that gentleman on the phone and lead him to Christ right there on the phone. It was about seizing the opportunity, looking for those opportunities. So the question is for you, are you looking for opportunities to share with those around you about what Christ did on the cross? The people on your bus, the people that you work with, the people at your school, your families, at parties. When things come up on the news and somebody asks you a question, are you, do you have the boldness and determination to say, here's my opportunity and share them? Notice what in verse 11 Oh, what Peter and John do. They said he is, they proceeded to tell him about Christ. He is the stone the builders rejected. He's become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given by which men must be saved. Notice what Peter and John do. Okay. Peter and John talk about Christ. Now you may say, well, of course they talk about Christ. But they go right to the cross. One of the encouragements I want to give you is to make sure that when you're talking when you seize the opportunity, that you aren't just sharing your testimony. You have to differentiate your testimony from the salvation message, from evangelism. Why is that important? Because when you talk about your testimony, you seize those opportunities, you say, you know what, I asked Christ to come into my life, and now I have a wonderful peace, and I have such a joy in my life. You know what the response you're often going to get is that, you know what, I'm, I'm from another religion, and I had that same experience. You have to understand, telling your testimony is important. But you need to tell them about what Christ did on the cross. That's why Roy Clement says, Testimony is telling people what Jesus has done for me in my personal experience, but evangelism is telling what Jesus has done for history. So we need to make sure that we point to the cross. Your testimony is a result of what Christ did on the cross. That's why John 14, 6, Jesus answered what? I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Powerful verse. In the, the age we live in where we need to be tolerant of other religions and we don't want to offend people, that there's multiple ways to get to heaven, we have to go back to that verse and you know what? No, Jesus is the only way. It's by his name that we're saved. Enter the narrow gate for wide is the gate, broad is the road that leads to destruction. Many enter through it, but small is the gate, narrow is the road that leads to life. Only few find it. We have to remember, seize every opportunity, but tell them about Christ. Number three, not only do we need to be filled, not only do we need to seize every opportunity, but we have to have courage. We have to have courage. That's why we've titled this passage, this sermon, Courage Born of Conviction. Courage Born of Conviction. Verse 13 says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John, and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, and they were astonished. They took note that these men had been with Jesus. They were untrained. They were unschooled. Understand, they were from Galilee. The people in Galilee were not looked on uh, well in Jerusalem. People from Galilee were kind of looked at like the lower class. They weren't as educated. They, 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 they were maybe a little backward. Uh, we see that kind of time and time again throughout these scriptures when Philip and, and Nathaniel, Philip told Nathaniel about, he, he found the, the Messiah, and Nathaniel says, uh, he says, can anything good come out of Galilee? When Nicodemus, we looked at Nicodemus a few weeks ago in the face-to-face with Jesus, Nicodemus is telling the religious leaders that talk about Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. And they, they tell Nicodemus, 
you're from Galilee too. Search and see that no prophet would ever arise out of Galilee. So here's Peter and John. They're unschooled. They're kind of ordinary men. How does that relate to us? Some of us feel so uh, unequal to the task to talk about what Christ did on the cross because we're not schooled. We're not educated. You say, well, I'm not a pastor. I'm not in ministry. I could never share what, what Christ did on the cross. That's where we have to take courage. Peter and John were ordinary men. 5,000 people came to Christ. In chapter 2, 3,000 people came to Christ. They were ordinary men. Ordinary people. They had no theological training. They weren't sitting in church. They weren't uh, going to seminary. They were ordinary people. They took courage. And we have courage because we have confidence in the gospel. We have courage because we know the Holy Spirit's going to guide us. You know, a few weeks ago, we, we also looked at Saul. If you remember, we looked at the conversion of Saul. If you remember Saul, he was a, you know, a, a terrorist, if you will, at the time. And he had this wonderful conversion on the road, to, on the road and, and uh, he was blind for three days. So what happened to Saul? He's blind for three days, and Ananias later goes and, and, and lays his hands on Saul, tells him the rest of the way. If you remember that story in Acts 9, it says, In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. Ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Notice that God never told Ananias that Saul was converted. He just said, Go, Saul's in the room blind. Ananias knew that Saul was a terrorist. Ananias knew that he could be killed because Saul already, he already saw Saul kill so many other Christians. But what did Ananias do? He went anyway. I mean, can you imagine what he's thinking as he's walking down the street, going to this guy named Saul, going, you know what, if I walk in there, his spear, his sword, still sitting in the corner. I wonder what he's going to do to me. But what did Ananias do? He just got up and went. Paul touched so many people. Saul turned to Paul, and he touched so many people throughout his life. But God first used Ananias to touch Paul. Peter and John witnessed 5,000 people come to Christ. Imagine what those 5,000 people did. Spread the message. But Paul, God first used Peter and John, didn't he? My question to you is, who's the Saul in your life? Who's the person that you see next to you, that you see on a regular basis, whether it's your family member, a friend, somebody at work, who you look at and you go, you know what, that, one's, that person's too far, too bad. Too far gone, too old, too cold, forget it. I am not going to witness to that person. I'm going to be uncomfortable. They're going to put me out. They're, uh, they're going to, I'm going to feel isolated. I might offend them. God's not going to use them anyway. We have courage because... The Holy Spirit's working through us. And we go because of our conviction to go. We tell them because of our conviction to tell them. Number four is we also have to be obedient at all costs. This isn't in your notes, but verse 18 says, Then they called them again, late in the passage, called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourself whether it's right in God's sight to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Peter and John knew what they did to Jesus, didn't they? 
They knew what could happen. But why did they keep doing it? Why did they keep uh, talking to folks about what Christ did on the cross? Why did they talk about where salvation lies? Because of their conviction to do so. Because they were obedient at all costs. Courage is a contradictory of terms. It means a strong desire to live, taking the form of a readiness to die. Peter and John were ready to die. They were ready to be persecuted. Are you ready to be outcast? Are you ready to feel uncomfortable? Are you ready to maybe feel that you've offended somebody? Are you ready? We must be obedient at all costs. Number five, we ought to give thanks as well. We must give thanks in light of our persecution. You know, one of the things that we're doing here at the church is we're really celebrating what God's done. And we give thanks in all circumstances. Verse 21 says, after further threats, they let him go. They, did not, they could not decide how to punish them, Peter and John, because all the people were praising God for what had happened. They were praising God for what had happened, the persecution that happened. But they were praising God for the 5,000 people who came to Christ. We here at the church have a wonderful opportunity over the next few weeks to celebrate what God has done. Despite the persecution, despite the trials that we've run into, we celebrate that and we give thanks. Ephesians 5.18, give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. We give thanks. So my question for you this morning is, are you filled with the Holy Spirit? Are you seizing every opportunity that's around you to talk about what Christ did on the cross? Do you have courage to do so? Are you being obedient at all costs? And are you giving thanks? One of the things that's wonderful that happened at the end of this passage is not only did they give thanks, but number six, they prayed for greater boldness. They prayed for greater boldness. As we look at uh, verse 29 down pa- uh, further in Acts 4. Now the Lord considered the, they're, they're praying. They're, they're, they've already given thanks. And now they say a prayer. Now Lord, consider their threats. Enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miracle signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Oh, that's my prayer for us, church. That we continue to proclaim the message of Jesus Christ boldly. I pray that for your own lives, that you can do that boldly. That you realize that you have the power to do that the courage to do that, that you're looking for those opportunities and that you continue to boldly proclaim the name of Jesus. I pray that for our own church as we look over the next 20 years that we boldly proclaim the name of Jesus, that we don't back down, that we don't water down the message, that we don't water down this gospel message, that we boldly proclaim it. That's how we stand out. That's how we're going to be world changers. We do that through prayer. We realize the urgency of the gospel. One final point. You know, a lot of people will say, I'm waiting for that overwhelming feeling to feel that love of the lost. We use that as Christian jargon, don't we? Before I go and tell others about Christ. That really is Christian, what I call jargon. Because I don't know how you could have a love for the lost. That's kind of an abstract type feeling, isn't it? We have courage because of our conviction. We have courage because we know what Christ did for us. We know that Christ has commanded us to go and proclaim his name. So my encouragement is don't wait until you have that love of the lost. We go because we know that Christ asked us to go. One author wrote, don't wait for a feeling or love in order to share Christ 
with a stranger. You already love your heavenly Father. And you know that this stranger is created by him, but separated from him. So take the first steps in evangelism because you love God. It's not primarily out of compassion that we share our faith. It's first of all, our love of God. It's a great reminder as we come to the communion table, remember what Christ did for us. The love he showed us, the same love that we can show others. So let's pray. God, thank you for today. Father, I thank you for what we can learn in your word this morning. Father, that your word, pointing to the cross, Father, people are changed. So, Father, I pray that you be with us all here, Father, that you constantly fill us with your spirit, Father, that we are looking to you. Father, that we are looking for opportunities to share what you've done, what you did on the cross, Father, when you sent your son. Father, help us to find those opportunities. Help us to be courageous to tell others about that. Despite the persecution we may face, Father, help us to be obedient at all costs. And Father, I do pray for our church. I pray for greater boldness. Thank you for it as we celebrate what you've done, sending your son to die for us, Father, as we approach the communion table. Thank you for the love that you showed us. I pray that we can love others in the same right. I ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.